Ready in three, two, one. Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Nerds of Legend. Uh, I'm your co-host, Ben, and next to me is Brendan. It's just going to be the two of us today, and we're going to be talking about Warhammer 40k. Uh, we're going to start by talking about some of the origins back, way back when it started. Uh, we're going to get a little little bit of lore discussion in, but a lo- right now we're just going to be focusing on the beginning with Games Workshop, Rogue Trader, and all that fun stuff. So, Brendan, without further ado... Take us away. And to dork it up. Uh, appreciate you being here, Ben. Um, I don't know if everybody in Nerds of Legend is as nerdy as we are. So. Uh, everyone's got their own things that they nerd out about, of course. But uh, yes, and, and you can see very, very far away, Ben's got his books behind him. I think we um, go. F- I think you and I go furthest afield in terms of our various nerd things. But yes, yes, to be sure. Um, just waiting for my Leviathan box to come. It's, it's, yeah, I also ordered my Leviathan box. So, um, most viewers um, and mo- most friends that I know are initially intimidated. It is. And, and it by is. Games Workshop in general, you you have the price point, uh, you have the complexity of picking up painting miniatures. It, it's taken me I've been painting since I was 16, and yeah. there's still things for me to learn. I, I'm new to Zenithal. Some of you may not even know what that means. Um, uh, there's all sorts of new painting techniques that have come out along with new paints it's actually it's a different science than it was even 15 years ago right um so with all of those things stacked on top of each other it's a very similar question that i get from people who talk to me about who have seen the mcu that are right comics they're like where do i begin there there are so many places to enter and and leave leave in and out and I think I, I think I asked you four or five different times where I should start, and you just said, "I don't know." <laughs> yeah, um, uh, and then I, I think, I think the latest gateway we're seeing a re- sort of resurgence in interest in 40k. I feel like, I think, I think one of the big points is you've got like Adeptus Ridiculous, which I feel like makes it a really easy way to like get in. Like that's how I got into 40k because it like they 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 broke it down it's like talking to like guy that knows nothing about 40k versus guy that knows everything about 40k and you sort of get it put into digestible chunks which is nice because you start looking at some of the lore videos and you get some guys that are like are always going to be talking like this and talk about how badass it is and blah 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 and then you've got guys that are like well actually um (laughs) And yeah. I and I th- I feel like there was no in between, and that we're trying to we're gonna try and make it like a little little bit of fun. We're gonna try not to go like super and in the lore and quotes and stuff. But I don't know what yeah. Brendan's got in store for us. But I, I don't have any uh, any music. I don't have any ambiance. I don't have a voice modulator to sound like a space marine. Yeah. Um, I'm not here to to rake the coals. I mean, I do, but um. yeah, you do. Um. I, 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 it's very rare for someone in the streaming community to talk to to talk about 40ks if they're just hanging out with you in the basement, like yeah. in our respective basements. Right? Yeah. It's, it's either you know in the 41st millennium, uh, or it's a guy like in your face with big expressions and, and yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about it the way I learned it, uh, spending all of my weekends in high school. <laughs> losing my money on it and uh, <laughs> running, running books to the library and, and 
sometimes paying for them and sometimes getting videos. Because that's the thing. Um, my first memories of 40K are looking in issues of White Dwarf Magazine. I'd like to do an episode on White Dwarf Magazine. It's the official magazine of Games Workshop. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, it's very much um, half 40K, half Age of Sigmar. There's some um, Tolkien in mm-hmm. there. And occasionally, specialist games like Blood Bowl. Uh, so it's primarily the product line for Games Workshop. Back in the day, there were so many varied products. Um, we're going to start with the origins of Games Workshop because it gives us... Uh, it, it's not completely going to be about the origins of the company, but it'll give us a nice historical perspective for how 40K came to be. I feel like people are either talking about lore, actually primarily talking about lore or the game. No one is talking about the history of the company, really. Uh, I highly recommend a book called Dice Men. It came out, I think it's within a year. It's Dicemen, the origin story of Games Workshop. It's um, by Ian Livingstone with Steve Jackson, uh, two of the three founders of the company. Uh, it talks about the complete origins of the company. Um, it started out in 1975, and uh, Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader started in 1986. Mm-hmm. So the company and the game both predate my existence. Mm-hmm. So I, I came into it seeing these splendid... Uh, full-color art prints of these armies and, and this very vibrant goblin green base. And the 90s were very tubular. You had, like, red nails and everything was shiny and extreme. Um, and as a kid, you don't have that money. Back in the lead days. <laughs> yes, primarily there were lead. There were a multi-part. My, my first box set was the third edition 40K box set. It was the Black Templars uh, versus the Dark Eldar. And you had a land speeder. And... Um, I learned, I, I, I actually, um, the benefits of being a dork. Last year, I talked to one of the VPs of sales from Games Workshop um, throughout that period at Medivin Gen Con. He, he was running the auction hall, and he, uh, we talked about it, uh, 1999. He said the, th- the third ed box set, the Black Templars were invented so children could enter the game more easily because mm. the black and white. So the yeah. Yeah. So everything, everything has this business perspective to it. But if we go back to the origins of the company, before Ian uh, and Steve left and sold their stock and, and sold their stake, and before Rick Priestley left, who was the uh, premier rules writer for, for Rogue Trader, you saw a lot of ideas and you saw creativity over mm-hmm. profit. And I think that's that's where that's why people look at it with rose-colored glasses. Yeah. So um, I'll take us through a very very quick origin of the company. If you want to really get into that, I highly recommend the book Diceman. Um, it started in 1975. <laughs> It was a it was a mail order business part time, so they had a flat in West London, and I think for three years they sold um, like Mancala and, and like board games and yeah. chess and stuff like that. Yeah, they're just the, the Monopoly and Sorry it's, and Parcheesi. Nintendo sold um, uh, Hanafuda Japanese playing cards mm-hmm. when they ever got video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, games Workshop is no exception. So I, I doubt I got. A, I won trivia night last night with with that answer. So really, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, for, for viewers, volleyball was once known as Mintonette. I lost that in a trivia night. So ah. that'll, that'll help you. Um, but yeah, they sold primarily uh, board game accessories and board games. And you'll notice a lot of young gaming businesses uh, that are now thought of, you know, with renown, jumped on what was needed at the time. Mm-hmm. And you think of like um, Saban with the Power Rangers. 
he saw um, those um, Super Sentai shows in Japan. Mm -hmm. He thought, hey, maybe there's a market for that in the United States. And there was the anime boom in the 80s. And, hey, why don't we just get some bucks together and just get the distribution rights in the U.S. for some of these anime shows and see if we can make some money. Right. Well, D&D was getting very big uh, in the U.S. in the uh, approaching the late 70s. Word of it had reached the United Kingdom. And they had an import license, Games Workshop, to distribute uh, Dungeons & Dragons memorabilia. And then there was a need for miniatures. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't necessarily easy to bring Grenadier miniatures over. So what ended up happening is, after importing the rules, in some of the earliest pictures of Games Workshop, you actually see uh, players' handbooks and stuff on the walls. Uh, there was a, there was a, an adjoining company, Citadel Miniatures, was, mm -hmm. the, was the miniatures uh, wing of Games Workshop. And they thought, hey, why don't we sculpt our own miniatures that we can sell for Dungeons and Dragons? Mm -hmm. And you, uh, if you've heard of 2000 AD, the very popular comic book series of which um, Judge Dredd comes from, uh, I think there's um, uh, there's like Judge Death and there's Judge Anderson. There's all these characters. I think maybe is it Rogue Trooper, or Rebel Trooper? I, it's been a hot minute since I've read them. Um, but Judge Dredd, the license for Judge Dredd miniatures was picked up by Games Workshop. They were able to distribute, I believe, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Um, Lord of the Rings had official miniatures that Games Workshop carried. Once they started launching White Dwarf in the late 70s, their hobby magazine, if you look at really early issues, it was essentially a newsletter. Yeah. So This is what's coming out. <laughs> Order now. <laughs> yeah. You see in the back, there, um, they sold stuff for D&D. They sold stuff for 2080. They sold miniatures for Lovecraftian horror, like Dracula and the Mummy, and the, you know anything to get a buck. Yeah. If you look at your hobby shops now, you're selling Magic the Gathering, you're selling comic books, you're selling Funko Pop, you're selling um, uh, 40K. You know, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, anything to get profit. So at the time, they were carrying a, a, a lot of licenses. Now, 40K, um, we're jumping a little bit, but like even the Adeptus Arbides, who are like the space cops in the hive worlds in the 40K lore, even if you don't know what that is yet, just know that that was taken from Games Workshop having the license to Judge Dredd and mm. saying, hey, manipulate the molds a little bit. We can use these miniature molds and make these guys. Yeah. A lot of a lot of Warhammer 40,000 out of necessity was was born out of taking intellectual <laughs> property and tweaking it. Yeah. So the Deptus Arbidates were, were taken from Judge Dredd. The Mechanicus uh, was taken from Foundation. Uh, the Chaos Gods, Chaos is the big bad in 40K. Did not exist when Road Trader came out. Uh, that has extreme, extreme uh, ties to Elric of Malibane and the uh, Eternal Warrior stuff um, from that series of fantasy books, which, guess what? Games Workshop had a miniatures line uh, yeah. for Elric and for uh, Pantang, his, his, the nation of, of his rivals, and so on. So Games Workshop took a lot of these ideas that they already had and said, hey, let's, let's tweak them and have our own property. Um, so predicating Warhammer 40,000, you have Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Mm -hmm. And Warhammer Fantasy Battle is just as it sounds. You had dwarves, you had elves, um, you had Skaven, the Ratmen, which were, I, think, I believe, more or less a, a creation of Games Workshop. Yeah. Um, other than straight yeah. up. The only thing they didn't steal. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> heavy, heavy influences the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Bretonians. Are, are, are literally Arthurian legends. You have yeah. uh, Green Knight from Arthurian legend. 
you have uh, Guy Legros and Hugo Lepetit are Little John and Friar Tuck. Yeah. And you, you know, you, you have these. Um, oh, uh, Réponse de Leonis is is pretty much Joan of Arc. And so you have a lot of uh, folklore and and, and uh, Lord of the Rings stuff put directly into fantasy battle, and yeah. that arose from a need to hey, let's have some rules with these miniatures. D and D's origins lie in a miniatures role play set called Chainmail, and so there was there was a need hey, let's 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 sling more lead. Um, especially as they, uh, they eventually lose the D&D license. They eventually lose the um, 2008 D license. Yeah. And they eventually lose the Eternal Warrior license. And you'll see uh, throughout the history of the Miniatures line, they, they'll uh, tweak or, or retire or mix the Miniatures <laughs> line into what they are. Yeah, they'll lose the license and they're like, well, we still have these molds laying around. Let's make something that is similar but different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm a bit of a dork for the individual artistic styles of the sculptors. Jez Goodwin is a titan uh, in Games Workshop. He designed the Falcon Graph tank of the Eldar, and he designed um, a lot of the, the entire Wood Elf line and the Skaven line from the early '80s. And he designed the Melnibanaeans from the book series, and they just made them elves. They just rolled them into the Warhammer miniatures line. Right. Um, so what ends up happening is there's an interest for uh, science fiction miniatures. And at the time, the original founders of the company, um, Ian Livingstone, uh, Steve Jackson, I believe it was also John Peake, said, hey, uh, there's this market for fantasy miniatures. They, by this point, they have a store off uh, Dowling Road in uh, Hammersmith, London. Mm-hmm. They've had a store since April of 1978, and there's a, uh, a gentleman named Rick Priestley mm-hmm. who's working at the company, and they decide, hey, we have a very successful uh, line of fantasy miniatures. Let's let's get something going for science fiction. Well, didn't uh, didn't Sean? He was like on eBay or something, and he ended up as like one of the big main sculptors for like 40k, and then it found out. Like the guy was like selling off his stuff, and he used to be like one of the big sculptors for them or something. Yeah, so a lot of the original contributors to Games Workshop uh, missed out on what you could call the corporate wealth. Yeah. So like Ansel, um, a lot of the original White Dwarf employees that worked in the magazine that I grew up like I grew up reading Jervis Johnson, Gaffor, mm-hmm. and these are names to me like these guys were Adepticon household names. Yeah. Almost weeping because I was reading everything they were writing. Yeah. For years, and they got run out of the company or sold their stake and got out. And um, I mean, it's a publicly traded company now. In the in the eighties, late eighties and the nineties, this was not the case. It was a lot of uh, very passionate individuals contributing. Yeah, you know. So what ends up happening is you can find an eBay. My brother has, and I have original green stuff dummies, like the original sculpts of unreleased miniatures of miniatures that were cast for the company from the sculptors themselves. So, um, which a lot a lot of them carry their own their own sculpting businesses now. So Bob Ali. Um, uh, runs his own business. Um, is it uh, Nick Bibby, maybe? There's, there's a lot of individuals. Um, the uh, Foundry Miniatures, um, the Perry Brothers, uh, sculpted the entire Bretonian line. They sell their they, they continue to sculpt and sell their own. Uh, Ellie Morrison, she has her own company. These are names you might not know, but if you look at old catalogs of all the miniatures, these individuals 
sculpting all of these by hand. Yeah. Uh, green stuff, milliput, they use copper wiring sometimes. Invented, in a lot of cases, the sculpting techniques to create feathers and chainmail and armor, and made this by hand in the back of, of you know, Hammersmith London, this, this, this game's workshop location. Um, so to think that so many people were um, listening to, to death metal and didn't like Margaret Thatcher and just hung out in their 30s yeah. and just read comics and sculpted the stuff and now it's just a massive conglomerate this massive public trade it's just it's just crazy because like we, we were talking about this the other day it was uh, it's like the basically the or, like you start you go back to the beginning of 40k and it was just a bunch of like nerdy metal heads that yeah. like didn't like Thatcher and yeah. <laughs> they, they were like the they were like, what if the future of humanity is like this? And they're like, made a whole thing about it. And so, like, and then, but also bring in all of our favorite, like, sci fi fantasy stuff. Ooh, yeah. there we go. So, this is the stuff of legends. This is, I highly recommend it if you're interested in treasure hunting for defunct minis, minis that Games Workshop used to make. They cover multiple companies, uh, Grenadier, I believe they have Marauder. So uh, lots of companies for old defunct games. This is the these are painted examples in the original 2018 line. These eventually became the Adeptus Arbides, the uh, uh, Space Cops that you see in the Necromunda games uh, in the 40k universe. Uh, Could totally games. see it. Yeah, yeah. There's they got mutants. They got perps um, based on the comic books. You can see. Um, let's see. Oh, go back. To uh, to the to where you just were. Oh, okay, there's there's all sorts of. Uh, oh, never mind. That's it's good. One judges. Yeah, so these are original rips from catalogs. Yeah. So so you can go to painted examples and you can see Strontium Dog, and um, Johnny Alpha is a character from the comics. Uh, well, you know, so these are literal comic book characters that they have held the rights to. Go to the go to the mutants tab again. Mutants tab. Scroll down. Oh look, there's an orc. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> wearing a dress. Yeah, <laughs> so not good. Uh, Rhode Island Red. He's got a rooster head because he's mutated. Yeah, you know all these ridiculous sculptures, and, and you can tell these were done by hand. Yeah, um, in cast in soft lead. Eventually, uh, approaching the mid '80s, Games Workshop actually came up with a technique um, called slot basing, where there's a there's a, a a small piece of metal that connects both of the feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take the miniature and there's a plastic gap. There's a gap called the slot up that you just stick the miniature in on the base. You glue it and, it and you can base over it and the mini easily plugs into the base. Um, before that time, they were casting the base of the miniature, you know, the... Oh, like the whole thing? Yeah. With the miniature. And so they were saving money this way. Um, there were fewer um, mold errors and issues and that sort of thing. So, th- so at the time... They were revolutionizing the business. They they came up with slot base. They covered multiple lines of of, um, of intellectual property, and, mm-hmm. and they were starting to pick up speed. And so what ends up happening is Warhammer Fantasy Battle has been out for some time. It predates 40k. Mm-hmm. And Rick Priestley's approach with Hey, let's come up with uh, with a science fiction game. Now the thing with Warhammer 40,000 Colon Road Trainer. This is the original name of the first edition of the game. Yeah. It is presented as a role-playing game, a tabletop role-playing game. You have a game master. So really? there are not only two opponents, but there's an individual who's actually refereeing the game. Uh, 
playing elements to D. Uh, I don't know if it was out by that time, but a, a lot of tabletop games requiring miniatures, there was a game minister. So there's this very obvious um, genealogy to, uh, to role-playing games. And what is happening is all of the... Um, I, I actually have a scan of the original rule book up. All of the terms that are now synonymous and heavily copyrighted it, uh, with Games Workshop. So, uh, the um, Imperial Assassins, Rogue Traders, the uh, Adeptus Astartes, the, the Telepaths, um, the, the um, Adeptus Astrotelepathicus, the Psychers, the Inquisition, uh, Holy Terra, the Emperor of Mankind. All of these things, uh, the Imperium of Man, uh, came out with this with this book, and I believe it was printed in '88. Um, I'm actually looking through it right now. Yes, it's all copyright 1987 Games Workshop Limited. So um, you have so many names in here that are that, are, that now are considered titans in the industry. So Rick Priestley, Brian Ansel contributed, Jess Goodwin he wrote in wrote, uh, in White Dwarf Magazine, John Blanche who just retired this month. He had been doing art for Games Workshop for 40 years. Nick Bibby, Allie and Trish Morrison, they went on to make um, Marauder uh, miniatures. They ended up coming back to Citadel, so they made their own company and contributed miniatures uh, to Warhammer and 40K. Bob Naismith, these are these are names that if, if you get old copies of White Dwarf Magazine, these were titans in the industry at the time. Um, the illustrations involved, Dave Andrews, John Blanche, Carl Critchlow, he, he, he does art, or did art at least for Magic the Gathering. Um, so you see, these are these are big recurring names in, in what I would call the market of dorkdom, right? And what is happening is because the game is in a an RPG format, um, you have weapons that are shared amongst both players. Mm. So if if you know anything about 40k, um, there's this there's this iron grip of fascist space government called the Imperium of Man. It rules all of humanity throughout the stars in the Iron Fist. The Emperor of Man is barely alive on this golden throne. His uh, psychic projection, the Astronomicon, is projected through space so that navigators with psychic powers can follow it home to Earth and so they don't crash in space and, and so on. And you have um, you have the Imperium of Man's um, Imperial Guard, they, uh, his armies, his legions, and at the very top, you have the custodes that protect the emperor at all times. You have imperial assassins, um, arms of the Inquisition, the, the secretive group that that protects the Imperium from, uh, from uh, threats within and without. The Xenos, the foul alien, the heretic, that sort of thing. All of this stuff is determined in the initial rulebook for Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader by 1987. What you don't see is you don't see chaos. So by the initial, the, the first edition of this game, you have Zotes, which are no longer in the game. I, I believe they're referenced in um, uh, in um, Blackstone Fortress, so they've come back recently. Before yeah. a long period of time, there were these centaur kind of space hybrid creatures that served the the uh, Tyranids. The Tyranids existed. They were very obviously taken from Ridley Scott's Alien. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, they're hundred percent. That's Alien. Very so they're, they're initially in the first rule set. You have the Eldar. Their name has been changed to the Eldari because the term Eldar is taken directly from Tolkien. Yeah. You have squats, which are they're, they're, they're covered under abhumans. So squats are space dwarves. Uh, you have ratlings with, that are space halflings. You have ogrens that are space ogres. 
And in 40K, they're like, hey, how do we how do we get these minis into space so that people keep buying what they like? Well, they're abhumans based on the gravitational forces of the planet or based on radiation or, you know, other um, other features. Humanity, they're still human, but they've, they've been uh, mutated or morphed or, or, or they've evolved. Somewhere. By whatever planet they've been on for 10,000 years or whatever. And where does that come from? In Warhammer Fantasy Battle, there are Imperial Dwarves, so there's a line of dwarf miniatures that you could play with the Empire, which were the human factions. So you have dwarves working with humans in the fantasy faction. So what do we do? We just roll it into the science fiction version of the game. So they take the molds and turn the axes into guns. Absolutely. It's a very short hop. The squat line of miniatures, they have bikes, so they're all bikers. They wear leather. Um, they've got, like, Lego space... Like, they look very much like the helmets from from Lego space sets. they got, like, the visor. Yeah. Um, they, they look like bikers with beards and everything. The space works at the time look like uh, outlaw bikers. They've got, like, pickle-hawed helmets, and they've got spiky shoulder pads, and they're wearing chainmail and leather. They, they, it, it looks very, very uh, road warrior, right? So what ends up happening is, because it's a role-playing game, um, it's designed where you are a rogue trader. You are essentially a privateer that is commissioned by the Emperor, by the emperor to go in places that the uh, Holy Astronomican, the Light of the Emperor, does not touch. Um, spread forth his name and, and, and steal ancient secrets and, and get wealthy and famous or die trying, right? You, you, have a, you have a writ of warp travel. You have permission to travel uh, the warp on your own and, uh, and you know, go adventuring. So the idea is you can have a small force of space marines. You can have the Imperial Guard with you. You have a retinue, like a psyker, a person with psionic powers with you. And you could pick weapons from a war gear list. So you'd be like, hey, he's got a bolter. Uh, he's got a uh, shuriken catapult. Uh, he's got a plasma gun. These are these are terms that are now synonymous with the lore. But at the time, they were shared by multiple factions. So you had gene stealer cults, people who worshipped uh, the Tyranids and were slowly introducing their DNA and becoming mutated. And they everyone had a had similar weapons pools. And what ended up happening is errata additional rules were just continuously being published in White Dwarf magazine each and every month. So you had to keep buying issues to keep up with the rule set. Yeah, and so chaos. If you don't know anything about 40k, you might have seen the video games. You might have seen Dawn of War, which made Games Workshop a ton of money in the early aughts. Um, you might recognize Tyranids and Orcs were the big factions in the 90s. I remember them printed all over White Dwarf magazine. They were selling like hotcakes. Nowadays, I think it's pretty firmly Chaos. Chaos is, is I believe, the second most played faction in the game based on popularity polls out of Death to Count and so on. Chaos is nowhere to be seen. It's uh, you don't see chaos until the Realm of Chaos source books, which come out, I believe, eighty seven to eighty eight. Um, there's a great online blog called Realm of Chaos eighties uh, at Blogspot. It's uh, it's basically a, a time capsule back into that period. And they've got a lot of articles on the Lost and the Damned, which was the the first chaos source book. It covers, I believe. Uh, Nurgle and Zeech, and there's interviews with the uh, with Rick Priestley and Bill King and Brian Ansel about like like Ze- the the name Zeech, the the chaos god of of perfidy and scheming and secrets. It was meant to be the sound of a spell, like lit- mm-hmm. like 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 lightning coming out of the hands, like a Doctor Strange comic. Yeah, it was supposed to be like Aztec. The feathers were supposed to have an Aztec feel. Mm-hmm. So the, these are these are design choices. If you look at um, miniatures today. 
on the Games Workshop web store. These are design choices that are still being used. Mm-hmm. Feathers, lots of rainbow-colored feathers on Zinch guys, lots of different tentacles, as- asymmetry. Nurgle has pustules, and they're green, and they're gross because he's the god of decay and rot and corruption. These have been relatively unchanged for going on 35, yeah. 40 years from the, from the origins. Yeah, the, the, the war guys are big and red and angry and have horns and spikes. <laughs> and yeah, and so Corn and Slanish come out in 88, I believe, and they have their own book. Um, let's see, there's the Lost Slaves to Darkness, I think, was the uh, was that book. And Slaves to Darkness, Slaves to Darkness is a big one because what ends up happening is the Horus Heresy gets its first mention in Slaves Slaves to Darkness. Mm. Now, this is the prequel series of Star Wars. This is the original series of Star Trek. This is the prequel. The year thirty thousand before the year forty thousand is when everything goes to pot. Um, you have a massive civil war. Um, the emperor. It's like by this point, like around thirty k, everything's starting to look do kind of well, right? Like even even if it's like the dark future of humanity or whatever. Like in the thirtieth millennium, you had. You know, like there's good stuff going on. The the galaxy's getting united again. We're beating back the forces of you know the Xenos, and there's there's no Tyranid cults popping up. The we got a handle on all the orc shit, and then this happens. Uh, yes, yeah. So the Great Crusade, this um, this massive campaign for the Emperor and his Primarchs, his genetically uh, programmed sons, go on and cl- cleanse the universe of evil and, and aliens and heretics and, and colonize it for humankind has been successful. Um, and then, of course, falls to chaos and, and um, there's a civil war amongst the Primarchs. The Imperium is sundered. Um, Ferris Manus is killed and Sanguinius is killed and, Hor- and Horus is destroyed and the Emperor is, is left a, uh, a rotting carcass on the throne only able to project his psychic entity and so there's, you know, how did we get here to this setting? Isn't even explained until um, until this companion volume. So we're very, very early on in the story, but you do see these ele- visual elements, these story elements. So, you, so th- there's always this um, famed cynicism, this sort of um, humor, black humor bent to the universe. Um, there's there's a book called the, the Imperial Infantryman's Uplifting. <laughs> It's a, it's a book that every imperial soldier supposed to carry on them. They've actually they've actually printed it, um, so I, I've you know I've read it cover to cover, and in it it says like any soldier caught attempting to commit suicide will be will be killed. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like there's always this tongue in cheek humor. Um, there's references in in in, um, in early publications to music, and there's all sorts of inside jokes. There's um well even in in that pa- pamphlet, there's a whole thing. There's like a section on orcs, and just like, oh, don't worry about orcs. They're weak. Don't worry about them. They're like, basically, it's like they're describing grots, but like, this is all things like, oh, I'm sure you've heard about these green skinned brutes named orcs. Well, they're all, they're all right. They're like, you'll be able to defeat them easily. They're cowards. And then imagine the being like reading this as an imperial guardsman, and then the first time you meet an orc. Good gracious, they're twice as tall as me. Yeah. Yeah. They're eight feet tall. They get back up after you cut their heads off. and 
concept of the wall. Uh, oh, we've done a previous episode on on, on orcs in uh, in Games Workshop, and so the concept of the wall, the concept of orc and orc. Guess what? It's literally the same as Warhammer Fantasy Battle. They are they are taken straight from Warhammer Fantasy, deposited straight in this game. They're they're near identical, uh, different character names, characters perhaps, but they've got shootas and they and they like to paint things red because it goes faster. And guess what? Since they believe it, it's actually true. Um, you know, so the the earliest vestiges of these factions are very much there. The idea of the Eldar, the Space Elves. Uh, this race that's slowly dwindling and diminishing, that's obviously taken from Tolkien. Uh, what they end up doing is, by the time Slaves of Darkness comes out, they reveal, guess what? The Eldar are responsible for, for Slaanesh. And centuries, thousands of years of, uh, of vice and, and ostentatious behavior and complete avarice. Murder-fucking. You can say murder-fucking. Murder-fucking for <laughs> centuries. That psychic energy of these, of these space elves just being terrible people for them all created a literal chaos god of vice that is all both and all genders um you know yet the sculpting of slanesh in the mid to late 80s of like uh healed uh stripper heels and one breast and, and one and one flat chest and pierced nipples and all sorts of like like uh, lobster claws, all sorts of gross stuff, uh, bull's heads, and goat's heads. Um, that's that sculpting idea that comes from the 80s, but it's still done today. You see mm-hmm. the demonettes of the Monash. Yeah. You see these, these design ideas which still exist in the company. Um, so all of the all of the big check marks that you're used to, you see in this period. However, the size of of the lore has it's like a big bang. The size of the lore has not expanded yet. Yeah. So we've only gotten the at this point we've only gotten what we can get from source books and rule books, right? They haven't started publishing source books. Uh, the forty k road trader book. You had to wait a year for Slaves of Darkness. You had to wait two years for Lost in the Damned. You had to wait each month to see what they would publish in White Dwarf magazine because there were errors. There were printing errors. Yeah. To explain the rules. Playing in high school, um, there were times where some of the grognards, right, the, the old school hobbyists, would play first edition 40k. And the number one thing that I look back on with reverence is orc players of Road Trigger. Because the explanation of how many orcs you fit in a truck was only explained in terms of two dimensions. Yeah. So you got this by this, you fit as many orcs as you can in the truck. No, that was the rule. So players would build a wire basket coming out of the truck in the Z direction, upwards into the sky, like a silo, and fill it with orc miniatures. Because according to Rogue Trader, first edition rules, that was legal. So you could fit like 50 orcs into a truck because you created the literal basket, and according to the rules, you could dump them in. Yeah. So there, there's, there's these holes, this errata in the rule set at this time that I guess you could say adds character. You had... Um, did some of the first um, uh, contests in terms of gameplay. I think I think eighty nine. There's there's probably someone in their mid fifties, early sixties who's British will watch this and correct me with a deft hand. But um, <laughs> from a, from a hobbyist perspective, who's who's coming off the cuff, these are things I recall. You see you see all the little vestiges of what's now, but but smaller. <laughs> the the Battle of Prospero. Um, the space wolves being ordered by the emperor to to exterminate the homeworld of, of the thousand suns. 
um, that stuff isn't like the the box set in the eccentricities of all the books explaining what happened and like uh, Sanguinius being afraid that his that his, the defect in his gene seed is revealed because he doesn't want the Ninth Legion being destroyed. These are things that are expanded upon in the books today in the Horse Heresy series. I believe, I believe the end of the death what just came out. So this is stuff that's been retroactively explained, but the origins of it, the very, you know, the, the glint in the eye yeah. is, the, is the term in the 80s. Hmm. You see, uh, you also see ideas that you no longer see in the game. So I, I, I mentioned Zotes. There are these giant centaur beings that serve the Tyranids. They, they come back in, in limited capacity later on. I believe they're in Blackstone Fortress, but you see lots of ideas that sort of fell by the wayside. What are the most important? I'll see if I can find some zotes. I was about to say. Uh, 40k. Oh, those are f- weird looking fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, to say the very least. I'm going to look up. So it's, it's I, was not en- I was not envisioning uh, lizard men. Yeah, there, there, are lots of, there are lots of ideas that are that are touched upon. This is actually taken directly from Wojtorf magazine. Um, so, so you can see the allure, right? Uh, when you're a kid, you go in the store and there are pieces of lead in a bag. You see the, these full color uh, painted miniatures sitting there in the magazine. Now, the first one I read was 1997, so this is, this, I think this may predate my birth. But, um, but this is what draws you in as a kid, and uh, this is what this is what you think about years later. In fact, this is. This is January of '88, so I, I I wouldn't be born for another six, nearly seven months. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see, you see the, the the vestiges of what's there because they they are genetic slaves to the Tyranids, so they no longer exist, or at least they don't exist for decades. The um, the squats are exterminated, I believe, in '89, '90, the late late '80s, perhaps, are yeah. exterminated, and they're not brought back until. Last year, I think, actually. Yeah, last year. So everything that is old is new again. I think they realize everyone who grew up with that stuff now has expendable income. <laughs> because hey, it is a business, and and it's profitable tries the business. Yeah, that's <clears throat> kind of what you see a little bit is um, they're they're doing stuff and they're making all this these these things, and then when it doesn't sell well, they're like, well, I'm not going to keep shipping these out if no one's going to buy them so then they just kill it yes. and then people are like but why because it's like you're like there's like literally a hundred of you that like play this faction <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of rules that were just invented on the cuff so the space fleet game of having Warhammer 40,000 battles in space was first uh, first printed in White Dwarf magazine we had, uh, there were cards you cut out mm-hmm. there's a grade you could, you could put your spaceships on it was the Imperial Navy versus the Eldar. And eventually there's a box set for Space Fleet. I believe it's 90. And then you don't see anything until the late 90s, early 2000s with Battlefleet Gothic, which is years later um, a specialist game. So a more, you know, a more, it's sort of like um, Valiant, or, or uh, Marvel Knights comics are like, uh, or like a, a more mature label for Marvel. Mm-hmm. Uh, or Eclipse comics, or these are like mature label comics owned by Marvel DC. Uh, it's like that. Specialist games are like a more um, under the microscope game for very particular rule sets. So you have uh, Necromunda mm-hmm. doesn't exist yet. Necromunda was created in its initial form in a game called Confrontation, which doesn't exist until I believe around 1990. 
Uh, so that doesn't exist yet. Uh, you get what predates Necromunda, what predates uh, Mordheim, or what predates Space Fleet and Battlefleet Gothic is Blood Bowl. <laughs> so, the, but again, this is a 40k episode, but... but Tell me about Blood Bowl. But yeah, just to throw out that they're, they're just trying everything in the magazine. Blood Bowl is very simply literal fantasy football. So no. the football itself is spiked. You have teams of linemen and you have you have receivers. The early rules of the game had... A- I thought the football was a squig. Is that not a thing? Uh, it's an official football. Oh, okay. Uh, what, ends up, what ends up happening is the orcs have rules where they can have squigs in the field and I believe they eat the ball. Mm. Um, a, a, a goblin can pick up the ball and then you can throw the goblin. Yeah. So these, you have all these. It, it, the rules are ridiculous. The, the dwarves get like this moving lawnmower thing they can run over people with. Um, it's it's zany. It's off the wall. It's it was by design a caricature of American football designed by Brits. Mm-hmm. So it's and and it's still around. It's uh, there's the Chaos Cup in Chicago. There's still major events. The NAF is the is actually a presiding body that covers the, uh, the points at major events. So there's an international ranking system for Blood Bowl. So you have diehard fans of, of, of some of these uh, properties coming from this golden era in the, in the mid to late 80s mm-hmm. of the stuff being published in White Fourth Magazine. And um, we talked about some ideas not making the grade. So if you have friends who are in 40K, if, you're, if you've been looking at 40K, um, if you're an old veteran, you may notice the Adeptus Astartes, the Mickey Mouse of, of Games Workshop, right? The Bugs Bunny, the corporate logo, the Hello Kitty, the, the moneymaker. Everyone has seen a Space Marine statue at Gen Con or Adepticon or, or even maybe in C2E2. I don't know if they're there. But um, at the very least, everyone's seen a Space Marine. Video games, television, commercials, what have you. Especially with the show coming up. They're the genetic. Yeah, I feel like. And anyone that knows anything, like, like if you know of the existence of 40K, you've seen a space marine. Exactly. And the first thing... Annoyingly a blue one, but whatever. What's the first thing that you may notice, Ben, if you looked at a, at a glut of space marines? Skulls? Big? Maybe. What happens if, if I take off all their helmets? What do you notice? Big and bald. Why are they bald? Because I don't know. Does that help? Gla- glasses. They are all male. Oh, they're all dudes. Got it. Yeah. Yes. Even even though in the story there, I believe they're chemi- I believe they're, they're castrated, or at least they're they're not able to reach. <laughs> yeah, I believe that GW confirmed that no space brains cannot. Bump uglies, yeah, and and have no interest in bumping uglies. Right, they have multiple hearts and multiple stomachs, and they can spit acid. And some of them can learn memories from tissue that they chew from their enemies. They've never told us whether or not it's a Ken doll down there, though. So there are explanations of like the black carapace that like what they put on before they put on the suit, and, mm-hmm. and there there have been references to how the space marine is made. All you need to know is it doesn't work down there. And there's no need for it to work. <laughs> yeah. Now, there were and have been female space brands. They are absolutely canonical. They did exist and they were sold. The reason why you don't see them anymore and why they're not brought up anymore is because they didn't sell. At least that's the story that, that they give. Um, there were two female space brand miniatures that were made. They were, of course, advertised in White Dwarf magazine. 
They're now prohibitively uh, expensive to obtain. Um, there, are, there are people that make like fan sculpts that are similar just because it's so hard to find the original one. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, there were female Space Marines. Apparently, uh, the demographic of the hobby at the time was probably uh, pervasively male and most likely heavily Caucasian. And so what ended up happening is you see a lot of miniatures of the time period were Caucasian. Uh, nearly all of them, except for maybe like Blood Bowl cheerleaders and so on, uh, were male. Uh, I have I have a female commissar, the the officers of the Imperial Guard that I got mm -hmm. from Games Day. That is, you look online, you can sell for forty dollars. Hmm. That that should not be rare, right? And so you, you see you see nowadays with the newer miniatures lines, you see the Sisters of Silence, you see the Adeptus Sor Sororitas, the Sisters of Battle. You see female commissars, female Imperial Guardsmen come with the Cadia Stands box set, right? So you, there, there's um, Salamanders. So you see uh, multiple multiple races, multiple ethnic backgrounds, multiple genders being more more represented in the game. But at that time, not at all. In fact, you, the two female space marine miniatures you see are no longer produced, and uh, squats end up being uh, the term "being squatted" was a term that was used at the Games Workshop Battle Bunker when I was growing up. It's like, oh hey, um, that box is being squatted at the end of the month, so it's a markup. You guys won't buy it. It became a term for something being uh, just eked out of existence, yeah. just removed, removed from the catalogs, removed from the storyline, and, and what have you. Um, there are there are space marine chapters. So so the chapters are, are sort of like the Knights Hospitaller and the Knights Templar, the knightly orders you would think of in in, in history, in medieval history are represented by the space marines so they are sorted into, into chapters each chapter can have can loosely or closely follow um the codex astartes the you know the book of rules that you're supposed to follow um you see a, you see a lot of space marine chapters in fact opening page of the book i don't know if this is copyrighted material or not so i'm not i'm not going to show the page of the book. i'm going to show it anyway <laughs> we're not printing it we don't have enough viewers okay so um I share the screen you actually see you see in the in the um the contents you see references to the very first space marine chapters that are introduced in the game so let's take a look here on my own screen so this looks like they're kind of hard to even tell tell what they are here we go so you see this is the uh blood angels oh yeah blood drinkers Crimson Fists, Dark Angels, I believe that it, that's the Flesh Terrors, the Sawblade. I, I don't even, that might be Flesh Ears or something. I, I don't even recognize the Jaws. Oh, so uh, at this point, we've already even got the chapters splitting apart, not just like the Legion. It's not like the Legions themselves. There's no, uh, there's, there's no Horus Heresy yet, but, but we do know that there are chapters because they wanted people to buy min uh, miniatures to paint them their own way. Mm -hmm. So this is Iron Hands. These are the Rainbow Warriors, Silver Skulls, Space Wolves, Ultramarines, and White Scars. I'm pretty proud of myself. I, I think yeah, I good job. <laughs> yeah, the, now the game is so old at this point, the Dark Angels are black. Their armor's not green. Um, the Imperial Fists are not even in the game. The Crimson Fists are the only ones that exist. They're on the box set. They're, I believe they're on the cover. Yeah, the Crimson Fists are on the cover of the book itself. So what ends up happening is they get retconned into being a successor chapter. Sweet, are Ultramarines not in there? On there? 
Ultramarines are totally. Oh, okay. Different. I, I, I missed ul- it. Ul- Ultramarines are actually not not the Mickey Mouse. They're not the corporate logo yet. Hmm. The Crimson Fists are pushed as the cover boys at this point in the game. Imperial Fists. Uh, if you if you've heard of Chapter Master Valrock on YouTube, there, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of staunch fans of the Imperial Fists in the '90s. Well, they're good. Big, big chapters for the Blood Angels. They were red. The Ultramarines were blue. The Imperial Fists were yellow. They were all uh, in the Space Crusade, highly successful computer game. Uh, to an extent, the Space Wolves had a strong following this time as well. But those are like the big four. I'd say five if you if you include the Dark Angels. And what ends up happening is. Um, some of these fall out of favor. So the Rainbow Warriors are famously not really covered anymore. You'll see references to them in Game Stay, Golden Demon, like the painting competition. But they've sort of fallen by the wayside. The Silver Skulls, you'll see some references to them, but they're considered a successor chapter. So based on sales and based on what was being published, certain chapters end up becoming way more popular. The Blood Drinkers, the, uh, the, the Flesh Terrors, these end up becoming retconned as successor chapters of the Blood Angels. So they are descended from the Blood Angels. They're all descended from Sanguinius, um, the Primarch of the Ninth Legion. Iron Hands are... So the, I see the Iron Hands here, the Space Wolves, Ultramarines, White Scars, mm. Dark Angels, and Blood Angels are considered big a big deal because they are chosen to be um, some of the first founded chapters. So I believe initially 20 were made. The second legion and maybe the tenth or the eleventh. Two of the legions are lost to time, and we don't talk about them or why they were lost. So the eighteen remaining legions uh, in the story are the f- are the first founding legions of the Space Marines that the Emperor himself devised. And so some of these groups you see initially, based on sales, became huge names in the company, uh, in the lore, in the magazines, in the books. Some of them not so much. A lot of a lot of origins. There's like shifting around because yeah, I mean at this, I mean at this point, you know now we're at like there's well, eighteen legions. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, there's eighteen legions and and like so like those, that initial list you said there were like most of those have been relegated to being successor chapters. They're not even their own thing. So like they're they're. F- like basically the the three big ones or three or four big ones that sold well uh got you know bumped up to like oh these are the these are the OG and then like everybody else that didn't they're like well you can still paint them that way but yeah they're they're not actually their own thing you know yeah precisely and and what I've been talking about today assumes that you have at least a base visual knowledge of 40k mm-hmm. maybe you've played a few times um Terms you, ter- if you're new to the game, if you're completely new to the game, this might, you might not have any idea what I'm talking about. If you've never even seen a space marine, you know, well, it's, it's even funny how the helmets changed because, like, now I know why, like, orcs call them beakies because it looks like they've got a beak helmet <laughs> or yes. whatever. Yeah. Yes. Oh, so in the 1980s, uh, for those who are uninitiated, I'll show the cover again. Um, very famously, they're now known as Corvus pattern space marine helmets, Corvus being. Latin for Raven, yeah. and um, references to I think Cor- Corvus Corax came up with them. Yeah. Um, so is this like? Would this be like a Mark One armor or whatever the heck they call? It? They uh, they've got the. Technically, I believe these are Mark Six. Okay. So they actually they actually did come up with the Thunder Warriors, like the progenitors of the Space Marines, like the the sort of beta test of Space Marines had the Thunder armor, and so canonically. 
just like Star Wars sort of began with Episode Four, the power armor from the first edition of the game, this was devised as Mark VI Corvus power armor, as I recall. Uh, again, correct me, eviscerate me in the comments if I'm wrong. Um, but these beaky helmets, the orcs call them beakies. You see these in all the original sculpts. You see them today in veteran squads because canonically in the story, old war gear is still used by the chapters. Yeah. And so you, so you see um, the Raven Guard especially favor this helmet as it's named after their primary Corvus Corax. Yes, his name is Raven and he leads the Raven Guards. So yeah, you know, so there's all these little. Yeah tongue-in-cheek things that are done at the beginning of this game that they just that they just yes yes and and keep going <laughs> will it sell our primary audience is kids so will it sell if it does let's keep printing yeah um you do see you do see plastic multi-post kits at this time the first space marine box even in the late 80s you have plastic space orcs at the time so plastic minis did exist alongside the lead you get space orcs you get the eldar um, you get dreadnoughts, these big, hulking, uh, weapon-wielding uh, monstrosities that uh, were once space marines. Um, squats get exo-armor, so the little dwarves get their own little versions of terminator armor, so you get terminator armor at this time, you get land speeders. Um, so, stuff that you see in today's product line was devised at this time. My, my personal favorite game is Epic 40k, it's actually 6mm 40k. That uh, was first devised with rules called Space Marine, which I believe were 8990 that don't exist yet. So they're like massive scale battles. So the Space Marines are literally this big. When a standard Space Marine is like 20 millimeter, Space Marines are now six millimeter. So you can have Titans. Um, the first the first example of the Demon Primarch Magnus the Red is an epic because you can just put him on a 20 millimeter base and he's that big. Yeah. Uh, Titan, uh, Adeptus Titanicus, the first game that came out of the lore about Titans yeah. that led into Space Marine, into epic having Titan scale combat. That that wall all was, was devised after this game came out. So a lot of these ideas come after the fact. With 10th and 40k coming out, you and and myself have both purchased the Leviathan box coming out. All of the rules are being posted online for all the factions. Yeah. Reportedly, at the same time, mm-hmm. that, they've already they've already released some of them. Yes, they have, and, and they and they've demoed some of them in White Dwarf magazine. That was not the case. And apparently, it. Eldar are unbeatable currently. Yeah, there was a current GT event. <laughs> one of the GTs did not allow Eldar to be played because yeah. the balancing was not complete. At this time, rules came out when you got them. Yeah, and uh, certain factions were busted until they weren't. And yeah. You had to wait. You'd have to wait like years until the next codex came out uh, that would fix it. <laughs> Literal years. Now, um, I'm trying to think of anything I missed, but like visually, the designs are, are there from John Blanche's illustrations. The one thing that does hold together first ed, 40k to second to third, and so on, all the way up to 10th ed, is the visual design of the art. A lot of the storyline. From the original Roadshow rulebook, still applies today. The, the term Imperial Guard has been has been changed to Astra Militarum for the purposes of intellectual property rights. But for the most part, the Eldar are the Eldari, but a lot of it is essentially there. The core of it is there. The art is contiguous throughout. So John Blanche's art from 1986 to today has always been there. It's a shame to see him go, but he's earned his retirement. He's a he's a titan in the hobby. If you see. Uh, if you see a John Blanche illustration, you will not be able to tell if it's from 2011 
1999 or 1986. That's that's how consistent they've been with the, with the art design. Uh, Wayne Wayne England's. Um, there's there's a few names I think of. What pulled what pulls me back into this world is the books, the uh, the, the art design, and the beginnings of the lore from this period. So the rules themselves are absolutely wonky. They're completely imbalanced. Um, second Ed Second Ed is, is is when you start seeing. Uh, more re- more reliable. I mean, they're again, they're not fully balanced, but you see like vehicle rules with individual sponsors, and, and you have actual contests and um, like forty key tournaments and so on. Rogue Trader, it's a bit bumpy. Yeah. Any game match, you're just a really game. Right, but, you have to have a third party in order to to solve the arguments that occur. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lore wise and, and, and intellectual property wise, the bones are there. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I didn't want to get too much into the history of the company itself because that, that might derail us. But if, if we want to get more into individual ideas about the Imperium, like uh, we could talk about the uh, the Primarchs, the Horus Heresy, uh, predating the Horus Heresy is actually the Bad Up War. So that they, they invented a conflict um, that was supposed to reference the fact that individual fiefdoms of knights would actually come into contact, come into conflict with one another at medieval times. So they were, you know, fiefdoms, there were holdings of land that are awarded to space marines, where space marines actually entered rebellion against each other, and that conflict was called the Battle of War. Um, that was from the late 80s. I, I'm not sure if it, 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 it certainly predates the expansion of all the Horus Heresy books. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it came directly for it. It's all in like 80, 89 right there. Um, but, and did that get like retconned? So the Bat of War does exist. Mm-hmm. Very famously, the Salamanders chapter is from the Bat of War, and they were rolled into one of the founding chapters, one of the OG chapters of Space Marines. So you have, uh, I think, the Firehawks. You have the Mantis Warriors. You, so you. Um, oh, some of the uh, those are some of those names are uh, are from Cursed Founding, though. Yeah. So yeah. So what ends up happening is the two the two big chapters, I believe, are the Salamanders and the, the uh, Lamenters are from the Bat of War. They're a very popular successor uh, chapter of Blood Angels that historically have gone through many many trials. Yeah. And so um, they're sad. <laughs> they've earned their lamentation. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, the, the ideas of like the Eldar, the individual factions we could go into, but I, I, I really wanted to focus on a, a key element of the pieces that fell together that became the first edition of the game for those who uh, who are uninitiated, because it looks very, very different from how it does today. The miniature, the Space Marines alone are different in size, yeah. different in appearance, um, factions share weapons, there's all sorts of strange things in, uh, in, in that time period, but it was a resounding success. Um, I mean, Rick Priestley still designs games today. Uh, a lot of these guys, like uh, Gav Thorpe, is still in the game business, but not the Games Workshop. So uh, the um, uh, the Perry brothers still sculpts. So a lot of these individuals are still making art today, if not if look. and that brings that brings warmth to my heart. But mm-hmm. 1986, 1987, with the printing of, of Warhammer 40k Road Trader, they made something that is now. In my opinion, the biggest intellectual property pop culture, other than uh, obviously Harry Potter coming out of the UK, you, you could argue James Bond, Doctor Who, but well, just like the the library alone of library books, you can alone. like I could I could read a read a freaking book a week of forty k and 
be occupied for five years, you know, <laughs> or I can't, don't even know how long it'd take me to get through the entire library. But yeah, there's a, there's a particular reason why made in the UK is on half the stuff in my basement. And that is Nick Workshop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that gets us through like the beginnings of, of 40 K and sort of like the, the, the business 86 to, uh, through, 86 to 90, I would say. So let's say our next episode, uh, let's, let's talk about the Badab War, because I don't know a whole lot about that. So, okay. um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's an overlooked, it's almost like the Korean War. It's an yeah. overlooked. Um, <laughs> yeah, because Viet, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, Badab War, that was pretty bad, but then, but, but then the Horus Heresy happened, you know? So, yeah. the, uh, Uh, so yeah, so that's what we'll be covering next time. This is the Badab War and a little bit of we'll, we'll get some get some lore going on this time instead of just an overview. Uh, and then again, reminder: the book for for Monday is the Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter by if I can find it. By Theodora Goss, and uh, Joel started it, and he said he's loving it so far, so that's a good sign. And uh, other than that, catch us on Thursdays for Dungeons and Dragons, where we'll be considering continuing our Greek campaign. One final thing for our audience out there: if you're interested more in the lore, if you're like, "Hey, help me!" There's so many books. Tell me story. Uh, let us know. Focus on that. If you're yeah. interested in um, in Oitorf magazine, if you're interested in the eccentricities of, of, of the of the business, uh, that sort of thing, let us know how you liked this week's episode. There's a lot to talk about. I wasted a lot of my life on this. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're interested in story, we're focusing on the Bad of War next week. Catch us this week Thursday for D and D. All right. Thanks everybody for watching. <laughs>